First, our job is to get going with Revelation. And what you see before you on the screen, uh, Mr. Hartwick, if you wish one of these, just come and help yourself. Uh, what you see before you on the screen is an Albrecht Dürer woodcut representation. Um, I told you about that yesterday, but for whatever reason, I didn't have one along at that time. And uh, this is a little bit of review of what we told you about the portraiture of the Christ, or of Jesus, in chapter 1. And that comes up uh, decidedly in the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. So we'll just go over that again real quickly. you notice this protrusion from the mouth is that sharp two-edged sword. And he's got, well, this is kind of a German version of a scroll. It's really a book, but in Bible times it would be a scroll. Uh, middle, middle Ages, they didn't do scrolls anymore. So Albrecht is trying to translate, I guess, into modern times. The um, seven stars in the right hand are there, and the seven lamp stands are scattered around. I'm going to put it in your hands after a while, but you know, this way all of you can see what I'm talking about. You'll get close up later. Here is John, who is uh, kneeling um, at the feet of the, the Christ figure. And um, you see the, well, in a woodcut, you don't really see it, but you can imagine it, the uh, beaming eyes that radiate forth and see all, and the face kind of uh, emanating out like the rays of the sun. And um, the lamp stands, I guess that in, instead of lamps in Albrecht's time, they probably use candles, so that's what he's got there. So I, I will put it in your hand if you want to pass it around, if Somebody wants to take it home, that's fine with me too, but move it around. <clears throat> I would like to start today as we look at Revelation with um, a, a um, quick look at your Concordia Study Bible, page 1942, because it says a lot of things very effectively and also introduces what we're going to be doing today. Um, for those of you who are concerned as to the way in which the movement of the day is going it's quite simply this that we hope to break at about 2.15 as we usually try to do then you'll have a little longer break than 15 minutes not a whole lot longer but a little bit longer for those of you who want to do a little bit of relaxation or um, do some bouncing around on your motorcycle I know some of you would like to do that uh, two of you at least uh, or just relax or study or whatever and then I will give you the time when we reconvene, but it'll maybe be a 10 or so minute longer break than the usual, so you can do the things you'd have to do to get yourself psyched up for the exam which follows. And uh, then I'll have an announcement as to um, how I would report back to you, but I'll save that until the break time. So let's go to uh, then the Concordia Study Bible on page 1942. Uh, we don't need to touch upon a lot of these things because uh, we've done so already adequately, I think. But you will notice that near the bottom of the page there is a reference to the date of the writing, which really does coincide very much with what we mentioned yesterday, that is probably in the mid-90s, at the time of the persecution, and very likely the persecution under Emperor Domitian. That seems to be the uh, best uh, way of coming together with the various strands of information that we have, both biblical and otherwise. So probably in the mid-90s, John is on the island of, of Patmos and, and writes to these churches of Asia. 
The occasion, as we mentioned yesterday in this little bit of review, is to um, begin, the, the emperors were beginning to enforce, and Domitian is really the first one who, who did this on a widespread basis. You know, of course, that Nero was a persecutor, but it was mostly a local persecution in and around Rome in order to save his backside because he had burned down a part of the city, and so he needed to find a scapegoat, and the Christians were readily at hand to be that scapegoat. And Peter and Paul, of course, and many others um, suffered as a result of that. But here, this is a more widespread one, reaching into Asia at the time of Domitian. And uh, as he notes indicate, some had already lost their lives. Antipas is particularly mentioned. I believe that's in the letter to the church at Pergamum where his name appears. John is described as being on Patmos, which, uh, well, if you want to translate that into modern-day terms, this might be like being exiled to Alcatraz, which is quite a distance off of the western coast of our country. Uh, so John, too, was uh, far removed on an island um, where he would be out of reach for his own people. On the next page, the purpose is indicated as to encourage the faithful to uh, stand strong and not to cave in to emperor worship. Um, and those who would be opposed to the Christians in their strong stand uh, were usually um, Jews who would uh, identify the Christians as being different from the Jews and therefore not under the protection of the legal religions. Uh, up to this point, the Christians has largely lived under the radar and thus were protected, but now, uh, because the Jews were quick to point out these are not uh, the same religion, uh, and so the Christians were, were not uh, protected, and, and obviously they could not see the emperor as Lord and God, which everybody in the empire was asked to do. Under literary form, it mentions the term apocalyptic, and uh, I'd like to just have you look at the board a little bit, and we'll discuss a little bit how this pattern usually works in literature. It was a very common literary uh, schematic that was used primarily in the two centuries before Christ, certainly at the time of the Maccabees and their revolution. Uh, we have a number of literatures that are in apocalyptic form at that time, and all the way through to the end of the first century. That's the age of flourishment of the apocalyptic style literature. Now, the basic pattern... Uh, invariably had in it a dualistic um, emphasis. By dualism, we mean stark contrast between two things, like light and darkness, white and black, good and evil, God and Satan, day and night, that kind of thing. Things are seen in sharp relief. And this is also certainly true in the book of Revelation. You have this dualistic emphasis. And secondly, invariably, Apocalypse had an eschatological theme to it, in other words, something to do with the afterlife, the life of the world to come. And this is most certainly a heavy emphasis in this particular book. As far as the secondary features are concerned, um, we'll go over this quickly. Most apocalypses had visions included, and John, of course, has a lot of them in the book of Revelation. Uh, pseudonymity is also a common practice. That is not the case in John's writing. I put an asterisk in front of that as well as over here to show how John differs from the usual apocalypse style. But presumably it was important for John to identify himself to his people and to be identified to his people. And you wonder, you know, how he could be so bold as doing that. And we don't really know the answers, but I can conjecture 
that very likely whatever John might want to send to his people had to pass somebody's scrutiny. And if they saw all this um, writing and how weird it looks, they say, oh, we'll let this go. It's from John. They'll know that. And they know he's really gone bonkers because you know, this is all crazy stuff. You know, and <laughs> that'll really destroy the church. Well, of course, the opposite was true. The opposite was, of course, that people did understand, and they did get uplift from John's um, messages of hope for their present and their future. So pseudonymity was normal, but it wasn't the case here, as John is identified. A Messiah figure, and that's also here in Revelation, um, reference to angels and demons. There's a lot of that in this book. And animal symbolism, we'll see that. Numbers. I'll talk a little bit more in detail about that. John uses that a lot, and I was kind of hoping not to have to deal too much with that. But then as I looked at the chapters that we picked out, which carry the main message, you can't really avoid it. You have to deal with numbers, otherwise you don't get the message. Predicted woes. Yeah, in this book there are three woes, and two of them are described as already past. The third one is obviously on the stage by the middle of the book but it's never described as past, and we can only assume that John meant for us to understand that it would be past only when the Lord would come again and when the last tribulation will have ended, and uh, that, of course, makes good sense, and uh, I think that's how we need to understand that. Uh, so, yes, there are woes in this book, too, but astral influence, while there is a reference to the stars, quite a few references, it's not of the style of the usual apocalypse, which suggests that they have a way of shaping our lives. Uh, <laughs> astrology wouldn't, wouldn't ever be based on this book because the stars and the moon and the sun are not those that control us, but rather they are the ones that God controls and uses to his purposes. So that's really a flip-flop in terms of John's view of the stars and other heavenly bodies. Um, all right, so, so much for apocalypse. Uh, getting back to the book here, let's see, where do we stop? Oh, yeah, there is quite a bit about numbers here. Maybe I should talk about it now. Well, to try to, um, to, try to simplify this, let me go over this very quickly. The number one in Jewish number symbolism, God is one. And that's a very basic understanding and teaching God is one. Two is the number of witness in the mouth of two witnesses or three let a word be established. It helps us to understand also why a lot of biblical writers uh, repeat something or double it or use the figure two in order to show the importance of it. It's, it's something that is duly attested and should be duly noted. Um, three is, of course, the number of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the devil also seizes upon this number, but uh, unfortunately he has no right to that number. But anyway, we do have in chapter 12 and 13 the dragon and the um, beast from the land, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Those three are, are seen as an unholy trinity. So the devil tries to assume godly qualities, but you know, of course, he is the opposite of that. So three is the heavenly number, or the number of the trinity, whereas four is the earthly number, the cosmic number. So there are four winds, there are, quote, four corners of the earth, in the ancient cosmology, of course, um, there are four angels guarding the s different parts of the earth in chapter 7. Um, four is, is generally used to refer to the things that are earthly or cosmic. Then another really big number is seven. As 
Uh, Horber mentions in his notes on numbers, that's uh, without a doubt John's favorite number, four plus three, the things in heaven, things on the earth, uh, is of course the number of perfection. It's all together there. It's four plus three, seven, and uh, there's oodles and oodles of sevens in this book. Seven visions, seven letters to the churches, seven bowls, seven seals, uh, seven trumpets, seven beatitudes, and seven this, that, and the other. Just lots and lots of sevens. That's the perfect number. Um, but less than perfect is six. Six is the number of sin. Six falls short of seven. If you can visualize having an arrow and shooting at a target and the arrow takes a dive before the target and doesn't get there, that's sin. It's falling short. Uh, to miss the mark, the Greek word hamartano, to miss the mark. Um, six symbolizes. And then, of course, when the writer wants to describe the ultimate evil, the end of chapter 16, he says, this requires wisdom, and the mark of the beast is 666. So if you double something or triple something, you make it very emphatic. Another spin-off from the number seven is, suppose you have perfection and you break it in half. You've got imperfection. So the number that in- indicates evil um, and it's kind of related to number six as well in, in terms of conceptualization. Three and a half is half of seven, as you know. And the writer seems to kind of take a cue from the writer of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, using a variety of ways to refer to that. Uh, we'll be seeing the figure of 1260 days. That's three and a half years, too. Well, how do you get that. Well, um, let's do a little math here. There's 42 months in three and a half years, right? And each month having 30 days, round number, leads us to 1260 days. So um, we've got three and a half years, and we've got uh, 1260 days. We have 42 months. We have a time times, that's plural, notice the S, and a half. A one plus two plus a half is three and a half. So there's a variety of ways in which the writer um, uses this figure of three and a half. That's the evil time, the time of persecution, the time in which we are subjected to temptation and to, pers- to trials and to testing and to suffering, and that three and a half really ends only when the Lord returns, when all evil will be put aside, and when it will be no more. And that's why the third woe hasn't ended yet also as far as the book is concerned. So um, moving on to another big number, number 10. We've talked about this a little bit yesterday. That suggests completeness. Seven and 10 are sometimes used somewhat interchangeably, um, in apocalypse, you know, perfection and completeness, they're not terribly different, but um, um, it, it's used a lot, especially in multiples, like a thousand years in chapter 20, 10 times 10 times 10, uh, really emphatically complete the total number of years, whatever number this may be, but it's a very long, expansive time. Um, 144,000, we'll, we'll save that one a little bit, but that's got the 10 in there as well. I think we have to move on to the 12, though, before we get to the 144,000. As we said yesterday, and this is a little bit of review, 12 is the number of the faithful in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes in the New Testament, the 12 apostles. 
And if you want to put the two together, you guessed it, you have 24 elders in chapter 4 who praise God, suggesting, you know, the faithful of both times, Old and New Covenant time. So the 24 elders comes up a number of times throughout the book to suggest, you know, that totality of the faithful of all ages. And as I said before, multiples are very common. So you multiply 12 times 12, or 12 squared, and what do you get? You get 144, right? And then if you, in addition, multiply 10 times 10, you get 100. Suppose you cube it to the third power, you have 1,000. And if you multiply 144 times 1,000, you have 144,000, right? So if you want the total number of all the faithful of all ages, the symbolic number is 144,000, which, of course, we do have several times in the book, as we uh, touched on briefly on Chapter 7 yesterday, and we'll look at it in a little bit more in detail. So I think those are probably the most important numbers that we run into in the uh, course of this particular book, and it helps us for interpretation. I'm not just giving you this material because it's fun to do. It is that, but it's also uh, a tool for interpretation and to give meaning to what John is talking about in his writing. Okay, we can skip over the section on the various ways of interpretation, except to say that each of them contributes something, but each of them taken alone uh, is not a complete way of looking at this book. Ultimately, the things to keep in mind when you try to interpret Revelation is, keep in mind, we have apocalyptic imagery, and we have a heavy dependence upon the Old Testament symbolism, okay? So a lot of symbolism is used in order to convey meanings, but Old Testament is a primary tool, plus, of course, some of these plays on numbers and so forth. Yes, take is, is the numerology the kind of thing where, okay, it's just, we saw coincidences, so multiples of 12 must have significance because of these coincidences throughout history and scripture? It's not a coincidental thing. It's, it's intentional. It, there's a meaning attached to the 24 elders. That's uh, the elders, and that's the faithful people of both Old and New Covenant times as they are before God worshiping him. Um, the um, 144,000, you know, the 12 times 12, the 10 times 10 times 10, that, that's not coincidental. There's a message there. You've got totality, 10, 12, all the, the faithful, and you, you double it or triple it, you, you get emphatic about it, and you get, you know, as, well, as emphatic as you possibly can be and, and as inclusive as you possibly can be. I think maybe, I don't know if the words in your mouth, but maybe what he's asking is, did, is our understanding of what these words mean, does it come from the usage of it in here, or do we know that for, like, Israel? Oh, oh of course. Yes, that's, if that's what you meant, I'm sorry, I missed your, your question, but, but the answer is it pre-existed the writing of this book, so it was common knowledge. So we, we don't figure it out because that's what makes sense for the book, but it made sense for the book because that was already understood among the Jews commonly, that these numbers had a symbolical value, okay? There's a lot of uh, you know, Jewish usage behind all of this. And uh, it was common to the Middle East as well. Of course, the Jews are a central part of the Middle East. Well, I think we can just uh, put this behind for the time being. There is uh, one other little piece of review that I thought might be useful 
And I would uh, draw your attention to the study guide that was given you. Well, actually, it was in the bookstore, so you had to buy it, I guess. But um, you received it earlier. And um, because it is, I think, a very quick overview of the book, and we're going to go into some details on some of these things shortly, uh, it might be good to get the whole compass of it to at least touch these peak thoughts. So in your study guide, the very last two pages deal with Book of Revelation. And we have already dealt with number one. And um, number two uh, has to do with Beatitudes. Yesterday we saw the first of the seven Beatitudes in the opening chapter, which was a blessing upon those who read and hear and keep what is written within this book. And indeed, those who do all of that are blessed by what there is there. Um, it gives them the strength to persevere in faith despite the trials of life. The seven churches of Asia, which are mentioned in the um, opening chapter, verse 11, are then elaborated on in chapter 2 and 3. And as we said yesterday, they represent all the faithful of you know, Asia to whom John is writing, not just those seven individual churches. Um, but the idea was that these seven represent all the churches of Asia, and they have a lot of local color that um, make it easy for John to make certain spiritual points and applications, and uh, we will look at maybe at least one or two of these shortly. Um, number four here, and uh, that's a quick commentary on chapters four and five, which we probably won't have time to look at, but... Uh, these two chapters really are a, an awesome expression of praise. First of all, in chapter 4, to God the Father as creator who, as he sits on his heavenly throne. And in chapter 5, as an expression of praise to the Lamb, which is the common word that is used throughout this book to refer to Jesus, you know, the Lamb of God, as we have it in the fourth gospel. And this is another commonality between Revelation and the fourth gospel, the focus in the fourth gospel, and the Lamb of God, which is unique among the gospel writers. And here it is in Revelation, the very most frequent use of a reference to Jesus, although his name is used on several occasions. So both the Father and the Lamb are given praise. And again, very much in keeping with the fourth gospel, where the writer makes the point that we not only honor God as Father, but we honor God's Son, Jesus, equally. Because Jesus is from the Father, he does the will of the Father, he fulfills the mission of the Father on earth, and he and the Father are one. So as you take four and five together, you see that again in, in this particular writing, and it's a beautiful statement. Uh, let's go on to number five on your sheet here. <clears throat> Here's an enumeration of lots of different ways in which sevens show up in this book. And... Uh, These <clears throat> various series build upon the triumph of the Lamb and his followers over the unholy three, namely Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, or the beast from the land and the beast from the sea, as they're also called in chapter 13, after the dragon has been defeated in chapter 12. And they are, once again, um, primary attention receivers at the end of the book, where they all suffer a common fate, all three of these are seen as going into the lake of fire and a brimstone where they will fry forever. And so this is a very strong indictment upon the devil and his henchmen as we have it in chapter 17 and 20. 
As these series of sevens go forward, they build in intensity. There is a lot of repetition, but each of them, while they cover the same period of time, they're not, you know, um, one period following another, following another period, as some people have tried to do in times past, but they all refer to the same time, namely the time of the church's life on earth, while she is amidst persecution, trial, and tribulation. But as these various sevens unfold, like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, um, the intensity builds, and the um, judgment against the wicked builds as well, and at the beginning, the, the first series of seven that, that's uh, in, in this group of three sevens, um, the seals shows the Christians suffering along with all the other peoples because, well, this is the way life in the world is. Everybody suffers at some point. But as the sevens continue, uh, they are usually um, are shielded from a lot of the things that the earthlings those who oppose the way of God are not shielded, and the intensity is turned up on those in the subsequent series of sevens. And finally, when we get to the end of the book, of course, the climax is that the good guys have their reward, and it's all in keeping with that statement near the beginning. I guess it's in the second chapter, uh, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So the idea of fidelity is rewarded, and you see it increasingly as you get to the end of the book. So number six, the question, how long, which is posed in chapter six, a question which is posed by the saints of God as they wait uh, patiently under the altar to find out why, you know, the good guys suffer and they're told to wait. You already have received your reward. Um, you have rested from your labors. Take your uh, victory robe and uh, be patient. And God in his own time will draw the curtain on history. It is not yet, but uh, we, they are not given the answer when it will be, they're simply told to be patient and wait, and you do have the victory, so God will carry it through according to his plan. Number seven, interestingly also, is brought up for attention in chapter seven of the book, and it has to do with all the redeemed, the 144,000, the symbolic number used here. They are first of all described as sealed, and secondly as saved. Sealed from destruction... Uh, the destruction that ravages the earth, um, and ultimately also uh, celebratory in front of the Lamb as they have the great triumph waving their palm branches and so forth in the latter part of chapter 7. They come up again for attention in chapter 14, and we'll touch down on at least one of these two pictures as we walk through the book later. As you know, we're, we're making speed here, looking over the whole book right now so you get kind of the idea of the outline, then we'll touch on a few chapters. Point number eight on your, your sheet here is one section we hope to look at a little bit longer today, and uh, that is really the turning point of the book where the three uh, satanic forces are exposed. They're introduced, exposed, and, um, well, uh, described as, as the kind of damage that they're about um, and continuously try to do. The scenario is replayed in chapter 17 to 20, where uh, this triad gets its comeuppance and finally um, is defeated. And um, the rider on the white horse, the lamb, in chapter 19, of course, is a picture of Jesus who uh, rides forth in victory and his saints coming forth with him from heaven are following in his train as they liquidate 
and subdue all of the opponents who then uh, are thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where they uh, thrive. On the next page, the overthrow of the evil foe is described in a number of pictures. Armageddon is probably the one that the movie makers like to deal with best of all, but it's one of several pictures of the destruction of the um, people who oppose the saints of God. Uh, Babylon, the second one, is probably the um, most telling one because that really puts the finger on Rome very decidedly, and we don't get that clearly until we get to, well, chapter 17 is actually which exposes it. Babylon is mentioned previously in chapter 16, but in 17, it is very clear that Babylon is Rome, uh, built on the seven hills, which, of course, I'm sure in your footnotes you have those listed for you. Um, that's the Babylon that is creating all the havoc that John is having to deal with as he writes to the churches. And we have another scene in chapter 19 that I alluded to you briefly, um, that I alluded to uh, in reference to Jesus riding forth from heaven on his white horse, the one who is the word of God and, and who um, is the faithful and true one. And there's no question this is Jesus in that picture, uh, victorious over his opponents. And finally, in chapter 20, we have the great showdown at the city that he loves. And we can only presume that this is a reference to Jerusalem. Um, in the very next chapter, heaven is described as a Jerusalem coming down from above. Um, and we have a lot of other imagery in the New Testament that kind of uh, hints at how special Jerusalem is in Christian imagery. In some places, in both Old and New Testament, it's referred to as the holy city. Um, all right, so this is probably then uh, the city that's referenced here. As we then go to 10, 11, and 12, we can see that the symbolic 1,000 years of chapter 20 is not an exact number of years, never was intended to be that, but is intended to refer to the total period of time, you know, 10 times 10 times 10, you know, this, this totality, this completeness. Uh, and uh, at the beginning of chapter 20, there's a reference to Satan being bound and cast into the bottomless pit. And there are a couple of pictures in the gospel. Uh, Dr. Brighton alludes to a passage in the Gospel of Mark, where um, Satan is, um, uh, the strong man is bound. And, of course, that is in connection with Jesus' death and resurrection. I have um, always felt that in John uh, 12, when the Greeks come to Jesus, and um, he talks about unless the grain of wheat dies, and it, it does not come forth with new life. If, if it dies and goes to the earth, it comes forth with new life. Of course, it's because it's already been planted in the earth. And that's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. And as he talks about this, um, there is kind of a loud voice, and some people think it's thunder. And Jesus is saying, you know, I, um, I, I would like to avoid this scene, but for this hour I came. He came to, to face this hour. And now uh, the prince of this world has been cast out. Cast out where? Into the bottomless pit, Revelation 20. Obviously, in connection with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he overcame the um, prince of this world, so-called, and Satan is bound, as it were. 
So it's uh, no doubt a, the period when Satan is bound a thousand years until he is loosed. That is when the end comes finally. He is given credit for being the great destroyer as he has been throughout history. And Jesus returns at the end. So that's a thousand years whenever that is. Okay, New Jerusalem. Heaven is described at the end of the book. And the book concludes with a sevenfold prayer um, that Jesus comes soon. And that's, of course, the Maranatha prayer of the church that you also have in um, one of Paul's writings. So that's a quick look overview, and hopefully um, the review didn't uh, particularly upset you because, quote, I already knew all that stuff, unquote, but maybe hopefully it sharpened something in your minds at least a little bit. Before we go on then to look at individual chapters, uh, do you have any questions about what we kind of breeze through as kind of a quick overview of the whole book? All right, as a beginning then, as we look at several selected chapters, I'd like for you to pull out this sheet that you received as a handout yesterday that uh, gives you some of the uh, breakdowns of how these letters were put together. They seem to deal with a number of things. They each deal with what you see on the chart there from number three on. Uh, I supplied a few things further beyond what you'll find in commentaries, uh, like, for example, the uh, cultural background. Uh, that's not given in the letters as such, but the cultural background helps us to understand the letters because some of that background of the particular city is drawn on in the course of the letter. Um, the matter of number six and seven in commentaries generally is not listed like that. It's usually simply a matter of uh, some kind of a challenge or a rebuke. And I've broken it apart because really there are two components to that. There is a challenge and there's also the consequence if the challenge is not met. And the um, contemporary application uh, that, of course, is also added because it's not uh, something that uh, you would find in um, the um, text itself. Uh, it's something we extrapolate to apply to our current situation. And then the PS at the end. Um, very few commentaries refer to that, but there was one by Murphy that I chanced across a number of years ago that said, wow, this is amazing. He, he looks at chapters 20, 21, 22, and he finds in those last three chapters of Revelation something that pertains to the pictures of these letters to the churches. And invariably, it has to do with the completion of the promise, as you see on my chart, number eight. So you will see you know, these kinds of charts in other commentaries, but none of them have as many boxes as I have. So for whatever it's worth, it'd be my guest. Uh, you also notice that um, I'm one of these dudes who really is a son of the Synod, and I've been with a Concordia or another since I was a knee-high to a grasshopper, practically, since uh, I started high school. I've never been without Concordia any given year of my life, one or the other. And so, obviously, there is kind of a bias toward the letter C, you know, the big C in all these boxes, which uh, obviously, um, again, you, you can say is, is perhaps an apt description of uh, what's going on sequentially here in these letters. Let me just walk through one of these so that you get the idea of um, how John, in his stylistic way, approaches, and yet, despite the stylism, 
comes across with a very strong message to each of the churches. And I'm going to apologize in advance because the time factor here, I'm going to read about a page of writing here because I find this is the only way that I know that I can say something quickly uh, without, you know, um, chewing up great uh, gobs of time. So first of all, I'll make a brief paragraph about the cultural background, which um, leads into number two on your uh, boxes there. In John's time, Ephesus, this is the first church we're talking about, uh, and this is beginning of chapter two, if you want to check it in your Bibles. In John's time, Ephesus was the chief city of the province of Asia. It was the hub of three major roads that stretched inland from there to other cities. As the main Asian harbor for Roman ships, Ephesus came to be known as the highway to Rome, connecting land and sea routes. The goddess Roma and several emperors, including Domitian, were honored there in this city. It, uh, its most renowned temple, that of Diana, or the Greek name Artemis, as we see mentioned in Acts 19, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was the center of crime and immorality as criminals sought asylum here and hundreds of sacred prostitutes were attached to the temple. Not surprisingly, then, the letter denounces the Nicolaitans who taught that Christians could eat meat dedicated to the honor of idols and could engage in sexual immorality in the name of religion. Here, the church of Ephesus is commended for hating the Nicolaitans because of their teaching. The theater, which seated 25,000 in a city of 250,000, was the site of the riot of the silversmiths related in Acts 19. St. Paul had planted the mission in Ephesus and in the rest of Asia and was succeeded there by Timothy, and later John became bishop of the church of Ephesus and served there for several decades up to his exile on Patmos in the 90s. Now, a comment on some of the interrelationships between the various boxes on your sheet here. Um, and uh, typically, there is something from the cultural background that, that we can glean from commentaries that, that either relates to the, um, the confrontation box, number seven on my chart, or the consolation, the promise box on number eight. And the number eight box is usually correlated to the PS at the bottom in the end of the book. So, you know, th there's, uh, there's a lot of tie-ins with, with the background here as it ties into the message. The Christological word hereafter referred to as number three, as you have it on your charts, uh, relates to the word of confrontation, box number seven. And it talks about lampstands in both cases. Um, if they don't repent, the lampstand will be taken away. Uh, Jesus is the one who guards and owns the church's angel, or if you like, spiritual messenger, and keeps that messenger with the authority and power of his right hand. All the stars are in his right hand, of course. He, he walks in the presence of the churches which serve as lampstands or bearers of the light. The reader will understand that Christ is the light of the world. See John 8, verse 12, and John 9, verse 5. And thus the church is where his presence and his word are found, applied, and shared. The confrontational element of the letter, box number seven, suggests that the refusal to repent, um, which is found in box number six, the challenge, that is to rekindle their first love, the refusal to do that will lead to the church's dissolution. In other words, he would remove their lampstand. They would no longer be a lampstand. 
For when the gospel light is no longer beaming forth there to legitimatize the proper function of the lampstands as light bearers, they are rendered obsolete and they are removed. Without love there is no church, or as we say, they will know we are Christians by our love. Secondly, the word of consolation, see box number eight, draws on the concept of eating from the tree of life in God's paradise. This tree had been put off limits to fallen man in Genesis 3. The good news of the book um, here is that John's vision of New Jerusalem as found in Revelation 22, verse 2, um, has in it again the tree of life now as accessible. Um, in Garden of Eden, of course, it was not accessible. Here in heaven, it is accessible. Additionally, that tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, uh, an abundant kind of fruit, uh, the tree yields its fruit every month with healing, healing in its leaves, in its leaves. Uh, this is a significant advance over the fig leaf aprons of Genesis 3, which covered the shame of fallen mankind. Here in um, Revelation, it's healing through the leaves, not, not shame that's covered. Nothing good will be, not be, will be denied to those who walk in the presence of the one who, quote, walked among their lampstands during uh, their earthly sojourn. Well, um, I'm not going to do this for all of the epistles because we, do must, we must move on to other parts of the book. Let me just say a few things about Smyrna as you have it on your map and to say it as quickly as I can. Um, Smyrna today is referred to, as you see in your box, in box number two, by the name of Izmir. And as then, today it's still a very beautiful city with a huge acropolis, which was called the crown of the city. And I mention the word crown because it becomes part of the message to the church. Um, there was a temple here to Dea Roma, the goddess Roma. And the harbor is one of the most beautiful harbors anywhere still is. It was a trade center. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna. You probably have heard about this bishop who had been a disciple of John and in his own time later was martyred because of what Revelation talks about. He refused to honor the emperor as Lord and God and even at the time of death he was still uh, insistent. And, and Well, it's an interesting story. You should read the martyrdom of Polycarp. Very, very interesting. Um, now, the Christology used here in this particular letter is Jesus as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Now, that's very fitting when we talk about martyrdom. Like Polycarp, for example, was a martyr. And uh, if you're a martyr, it's easier to take if you know that uh, this life on earth is a, a, a foretaste of the life that is to come. Uh, a much better one uh, is in the life of the world to come, obviously. So Jesus is the one who died and came to life future life. And the opponents are described as pseudo-Jews. Um, the um, people of Smyrna are commended for um, living up uh, to their faith and uh, for experiencing tribulation, which they couldn't escape, and taking the slander of these Jews without caving in. Uh, interestingly, Polycarp, in the next generation, was betrayed by such pseudo-Jews and handed over to the Romans who then executed him. So it's, it's very telling, you know, the presence of Polycarp as a later bishop here and also a former disciple of John. Number six, the challenge is don't fear suffering, be faithful unto death. 
And um, the synagogue of Satan, of course, refers to the opponents. These are the ones who are um, confronted. They're the ones who will suffer the consequences. You'll notice there's no condemnation at all for the church of Smyrna's, one of only two that have no condemnation put upon them, no criticism leveled. And the um, consequences to be suffered obviously are not from them. That's why I put it into brackets here. The opponents are the ones who suffer the consequences because of their cruelty and slander. The promise here is to get the crown of life. Notice the city had a crown. It had an acropolis. And uh, the, the promise is also not to be hurt by the second death, which refers to eternal death. And we get that definition in chapter 20 of the book. Well, the concluding admonition is the same for all seven churches. Let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit said to the churches. That's in all seven of them. And uh, it kind of reminiscent of the saying that Jesus often gave to his disciples when you know he had something important to say uh, and to the crowds too. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. So how do we apply this? Well, despite adversity, we need to be faithful to God, whose promises are for eternal life. And, of course, we threw in this little Latin motto, uh, through adversity to the stars. And at the end of the book, chapter 20, uh, we have, of course, an exposition of what the second death is about. And uh, over the faithful, the second death, namely eternal death, has no power. And also in chapter 20, we have reference to the book of life, the book of life. Uh, this is where the, the names of the faithful are written. All right, um, the same thing kind of can be done for all the other letters, and uh, we will leave it at that. And uh, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to, to um, surface at this point before we go on to take a big leap over to Chapter 7, feel free to do that. I'm going to skip over Chapters 3 because it's a continuation of Chapter 2. I'm going to skip over 4 and 5 because we talked about it briefly a while ago about, you know, it's being praised to the Father, the Creator, and the Son, Chapter 5, the, the Lamb, and go on to past the seven seals in Chapter 6 all the way to Chapter 7. And in Chapter 7, you have kind of an interlude after the first, first six seals have happened. And you see there at the very beginning the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. We talked a while ago about the four being the earthly number. Um, and why are they there? They are there to protect the people of God against, you know, whatever the seals reveal, which is um, devastation, generally speaking. Uh, the, the good people are sealed. They are protected from destruction. And who are the good people? Well, in verse 5 and following, we have 12 tribal groups identified. I don't know if any of you have carefully looked through this list before. You weren't required to do that for this course, but um, there are two names that normally you would expect to see there, and they're not there, but there's still 12. Did you notice what two tribal uh, groups are not mentioned here? Okay, very few people have noticed that, so it's not a fair question. Um, but the obvious one is Dan. Dan is not there. And then you also notice that there are two Joseph tribes here, but that's a little bit unusual because in verse 6 it refers to Manasseh, and in verse 8 it refers to Joseph. When there's two Joseph tribes, it's almost always Ephraim and Manasseh, but here it's Manasseh and Joseph. Why is Ephraim not in the list? There are 12, so you've got the number of the faithful here. You've got the 144,000. Okay, you got all that good stuff. But why Dan and Ephraim not there? 
Why these 12? You see, you differentiate between the good guys and the bad guys. What makes Dan and Ephraim bad guys is that, as you know from your Old Testament studies, the people of Israel were strongly criticized because of the um, perversion of religion in the altars of Dan and Bethel. Dan, of course, is up in the northern territory, the territory of Dan, way up north, and Bethel is in the territory of Ephraim. And if you're going to look for why are these guys left out, obviously the true worship of God was not found at these places. And in a book that forces you to come clean on the question of God, you're not going to honor <laughs> that kind of an emphasis where the faith is perverted, like the altars of Dan and Bethel in the land of Ephraim. So in case you're wondering why they're not there, you do have Levi, you got Joseph in there. Uh, Levi in the in distribution of the lands usually was not one of the 12. That's why we have two Joseph tribes. And so there are different ways in which the 12 are there, but there's always 12 tribes in one way or another. And so, of course, the people of God are shielded. That's the whole point of it. But there is seemingly a deliberate omission of Dan and Ephraim as being uh, named especially, but, of course, you, you understand why. In verse 9, we make a little shift. We still deal with the same group of people, but here the shift is from being sealed, which happens during their earthly life. God protects his own, no matter what. Adversity may be all around, but God never allows us to be tempted beyond what we're able. We've got that in one of the epistles, didn't we? Okay. So the saved, in verse 9, refers to those who have received the crown of life. You know, they are the saved. It's, it's that numberless multitude before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and crying out, Salvation belongs to our God. This is in verse 10 of chapter 7. Um, who is seated on the throne, and, big word here, to the Lamb. God and the Lamb, always of equal honor. Okay, Keep this in mind, to a society that tries to minimize the role of Jesus and downplay it as he being less than God. John does not ever let that escape the reader's view. So the numberless throng, the 144,000, is a numberless throng. Uh, it's not meant to be taken literally. All the saved uh, rejoice in the presence of God and the Lamb. And at the end of chapter 7, you have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poem. Hmm. Ah, I love it, the way the writer expresses it. This is verse 14 and following. And the question is, you know, who are those who are clothed in these white robes and where did they come from? Who, who, who are these triumphant ones who are around the Father and the Lamb? And the answer is, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How many of you have ever run a wash machine? Have any of you ever done that? Nobody in this class has ever done a wash machine? Oh, yeah, eight of you have done that. It's awesome. I mean, most of you are students. You have to do your own wash, right? Okay, now, do you normally throw blood into or red paint into a machine and get your shorts white? No, your shirt gets red uh, for different reasons, right? Okay, uh, so here, this is kind of... A, a strange um, thing that you make your clothes white in the blood of the lamb. But you see, this is all symbolic. The meaning of the blood of the lamb is, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. We've seen it elsewhere, right, Matthew? Indeed. So um, th this idea of, um, you know, 
how do we get atoned for? It's through Jesus' shedding of his blood, his sacrifice. Um, now, the picture here of the saved is, is, is a beautiful one as we go to verse 15 to 17 where it describes how they will never hunger again and the sun is not going to strike them with its heat, uh, especially good weather when you think about uh, the next few days it's going to get 100 degrees, right? You know, it's not going to be in heaven like that. Uh, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Have you ever heard anything like that, that the lamb is a shepherd? You know, usually shepherds have lambs, but are lambs shepherds? Well, of course, when the good shepherd is the lamb of God, the lamb is a shepherd, right? So John loves to mix these metaphors, and he does so very beautifully along theological lines. And, of course, you can't escape verse 17 without making connections to the, the... Good Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside the still waters, right? And here you have it. Uh, He will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this this book is just shot through with Old Testament pictures. You you can hardly uh, go more than a few verses without seeing something somewhere. Now, I'm going to skip over chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 because... um, well, um, these are important, but we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about the seven trumpets, which is even more intense than the seven seals. We don't have time to talk about the seven um, bowls later either, which is even more intense. But uh, let's go right to chapter 12. As I said before, chapter 12 to 14 really gives us the turning point of the book where the enemy surfaces. And as we saw in I think it was the epistle to the Colossians that we um, struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of wickedness in high places. Well, here it is in this particular chapter. And uh, here you have a lot of symbolism again. Uh, You have three acts in this particular chapter. First is an attack on the child. Secondly, there is an attack on the angels in heaven. And thirdly, there is an attack on the woman who, by the way, is a portrait of the church, the people of God, the woman. All the faithful is described in terms of the woman. So um, you will, of course, notice, if if you have had a chance to read this, that uh, the devil gets three strikes. He doesn't get a free pass. He, He doesn't win any of the great struggles at all. The first one, then, there's a great sign that appeared in heaven, or important in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, the 12 stars on her head, a crown of 12 stars. So it's, it's not like she's controlled by it, but rather these ornament her. Um, and who is the woman? Well, some commentaries like to say, oh, this is obviously the BVM, the Blessed Virgin Mother. And uh, I think if you read more carefully, you will see that it is bigger than that. It's all the faithful, um, the child will come not just to Mary, but the child comes for all, going back to Adam and Eve already, you have a promise of the child throughout the Old Testament. There's a continuing line of promises always focusing on the coming child, the Messiah, uh, who would um, be the redemptive being. And um, so we have the nativity scenes of Matthew and Luke to underscore that. So the woman is seen to be pregnant, verse 2, and she cries out in her pangs of childbirth, and verse 3, 
There's another sign in heaven, a great red dragon. Red is a symbol of bloodshed and murder and, and rage, and that, of course, describes the dragon, the devil. And the devil is described as having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems or crowns. Now, seven and ten, we, we talked a while ago about the symbolism of these numbers, seven suggesting perfection, ten completeness, and sometimes they're used interchangeably. And as the chapter moves along, you'll see that they really are quite interchangeable. But what's the meaning of the heads and the horns and the diadems? The heads, of course, suggest a great cunning or authority that the beast exercises. And the horns is always a symbol of strength. Like in Simeon's song, he sings about a horn of salvation that's been raised up for us, you know, a symbol of strength. And the dragon has great strength, and the seven diadems or crowns suggest that he poses at least as being ruler of the world. He's prince of this world. He, you know, he, in his own mind, he is at least. And so he opposes to Jesus the temptations that we see in the wilderness uh, with him claiming such. So the devil is certainly a mighty force to contend with, and so he's described here. And then in verse 4, we see his destructive power with his tail. The dragon strikes down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Please note, not all the stars. He does a lot of damage, but it's incomplete damage. It is redeemable. Yeah, the world has fallen into sin, and there is not a good man on earth who hasn't sinned, according to Romans, right? We've all fallen under that curse. But um, it's redeemable, and only a third of the stars have been knocked down. And... Here the dragon stands in front of the woman who is about to bear the child. Now, I don't know, as, as a father, I, I tremble when I think of what might have happened with my wife in the delivery room when she brought forth our daughters. You know, if you had a dragon in the delivery room, well, this is how, <laughs> how uh, the birth of Jesus is described. And the great dragon, of course, you know, was King Herod, right? He sought to kill the child at birth. Uh, as soon as he knew about it, he was immediately giving the order that, you know, this child should be killed as well as anybody else who might be in the neighborhood, you know, so there's no mistake about it. So this is kind of a portraiture of, of King Herod. Um, so the woman brought forth a child, verse 5 says, uh, one who would rule the nations, showing, you know, he would be the ruler, not the devil. He would rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 is in the background of this, the the king, um, who is God's son, is, is actually, it's a very messianic psalm. If you want to read Psalm 2, you'll discover that. And um, um, it's one of the psalms of David where, um, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemy use your footstool. Uh, and that's described in the, in the uh, Gospels as relating to Jesus. So um, he would rule with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, but her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now, can you imagine that? In one verse, you've got the whole gospel. Jesus is born, and Jesus is ascended into heaven. That's about as short as a story of the gospel you'll ever have. But the point of, of course, the vision here is to show that the devil's intentions, his evil intentions, are thwarted. He doesn't get the first base with any of his intent of destroying the promised child. Jesus ascends victoriously. And, you know, he doesn't go into detail about all his life. Like we have in the four gospel, he doesn't need to because it's, it's been written about previously. So that's the vision here. And the child was caught up, uh, the male child, 
um, to God and to his throne. Verse 6 continues, And the woman, meanwhile, flees to the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, where she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Remember a while ago we talked about the three and a half as being 1,260 days. So the um, good fortune of the woman is that during this whole evil time, until the Lord comes again, she will be protected in her wilderness experience. Okay, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. That's our wilderness experience. She will be nourished. That's the good news for this whole period of time, the 1260 days or the three and a half years, that evil time. And <laughs> the world is very evil. We sing in one of our hymns, right? Okay, number seven. We come to the second image. This now is a war in heaven. And uh, there's Michael. And um, the great dragon was thrown down, verse 9 tells us. Who is that great dragon? The serpent, the devil and Satan. Now, in case any of you ever run into somebody who says, oh, this is a stupid story in Genesis where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, well, just point out to them who the serpent really is. In Revelation 12, you have the serpent clearly identified with the, with the dragon, with Satan, with the devil. It's the devil who tempted Adam and Eve, and that's the poetic way in which uh, um, Genesis describes who our real enemy is, and it is certainly the devil. So the devil was thrown down, that deceiver of the whole world. You know, he got to start in the Garden of Eden already, didn't he? And uh, the angels that he had with him also were thrown down. And there was a great voice in heaven saying, Yay, now salvation and the, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Hmm, power, kingdom, authority. Ah, he's, God is the one who's really got the heads, the horns, and the crowns. You know, he's, he's the legitimate source of power, of authority, and um, of um, kingdom. Not the devil, even though the devil likes to claim that. And... He is the accuser of our brothers. Well, of course, you know that devil is, in the book of Job, described as an accuser. He accuses Job before God, and uh, you know that story, too, how eventually Job is uh, um, restored. Okay, so what's the end of this little scene? Verse 12, it's about, uh, verse 11, uh, it talks about uh, these uh, enemies having been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Blood of the Lamb, of course, refers to Jesus' work. And the devil is also conquered by our testimony by which we stand up against him and, and oppose him. This is how the devil is defeated. Um, so rejoice, heaven, and you who dwell there, Michael and the angels. You know, you've got a clean house now. <laughs> There's no devil here with any power left in your space. But watch out below. Here it says, Woe to you, earth and sea. Now, we're going to meet the, um, the um, beast coming out of the earth and the sea in chapter 13. But first of all, we have the devil for one more scene. And in verse 13, we find the devil pursuing the woman, which, of course, is the people of God who received the promise. Today, we would refer to this as the church. And um, the, tr the woman, verse 14, is given the wings of of a great eagle to fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Once again, you have this Exodus picture, you know, how uh, after Moses and his people crossed the sea 
and the Egyptians were drowned in the Great Sea, and then they had this long trek to Sinai, and with all the children and the animals and so forth, and when they finally got to Sinai, they said, oh, it wasn't so bad. We were carried like on eagle's wings, right? And so here, the same picture here. Um, the woman was carried like on eagle's wings uh, from the serpent, and she was nourished for a time, times, and a half. Again, the same three-and-a-half-year period indicating how the church is, um, is um, taken care of. Um, but the devil isn't done with it yet. He is trying to drown the woman at the end of this paragraph. But the earth comes to the rescue and swallows the river that the devil pours out. And the devil goes away angry. The dragon leaves angry, verse 17. And the woman um, is, uh, is obviously saved. And now, what can the devil do? Well, at the end of chapter 12, the devil is found standing on the sand of the sea. On the sand of the sea. That's really not a very strong place to stand on the sand, right? Because sand shifts, doesn't it? That comes into play in chapter 14, where you have the saints in heaven standing on Mount Zion, which is a solid rock. Uh, we, on Christ, a solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, back to chapter 12. We sing about that in one of our hymns. Okay, chapter 13 introduces the two beasts, and I, I see that time is flying, so I'm going to have to fly faster. Um, you can just trust me that the two beasts refer to, first of all, the beast from the sea, generally by commentators, is seen to be a reference to the power of Rome that uh, comes into play when the Roman ships arrive near Ephesus and they land for the purpose of imposing their imperial decree. And you have to trust me because we have to fly. Verse 11 introduces the other beast. The beast um, from the earth is probably a reference to the local authorities um, that are charged with enforcing the decretals of the Roman emperor. And they use all kinds of deception, as the end of the chapter points out, <clears throat> to get the people in, to um, you know, kowtow to, to those demands. And um, one of the ways in which it is notable that you have done the required thing, namely given the pinch of incense, declared the emperor to be Lord and God at least once a year, this way showing your loyalty to Rome, is you get a stamp on the hand and on the forehead as is described here at the end of chapter 13. And this enables the loyal ones to buy and sell. Now, you can imagine how difficult it would be to go through life if you can't buy and sell, if you can't buy food or sell your goods in order to get the other kinds of things you need. Uh, well, um, at the end of chapter 13, in verse 18, you're told how to identify this beast who requires this mark. This calls for wisdom. There are two places in the book that call for wisdom. Here and in chapter 17, where it says, this calls for wisdom. Um, this place of the harlot, Babylon, is on seven hills, and that's a clear reference to Rome. So uh, 666 also then is the same, um, the imperial uh, power here, which enforces this evil upon the um, faithful Christians. The number of that beast is 666. 
We talked a while ago about the symbolism of six as being the number of evil, and if you really want to get emphatic about it, you know, you, you add a few sixes, you got it three times over, and <clears throat> so that's the mark of the beast. Chapter 14. Um, here we now shift scenes very dramatically. As John looks, what he sees here is Mount Zion. We said a while ago this is quite in contrast, the solid rock here of Mount Zion. Zion compared to the shifting sand on which the dragon stands. And who is here? The Lamb, Jesus. And the 144,000 who had his name, the Father's name, on their foreheads written. Aha. In baptism, you know, we put the name of the Holy Trinity on the head and on the heart to show whose we are. And so here... Um, the identity of the faithful is clear by the stamp on their forehead. And uh, they sing the new song. Of course, the new song is introduced earlier in the book, and that's the song of the Lamb, the song of redemption. It differs from the old song, the song of Moses, rescued from the sea, which is rescued from physical death. But the song of the Lamb is a bigger rescue. It's a rescue from eternal death. So th they sing the new song on their harps, these 144,000, and uh, that's in verse 3. And then we skip over past the three warnings from verse 6 on, the warnings to those who still need to repent. And we get to number chapter 14, verse 13, which is one of the seven Beatitudes. I think it's the second one that's mentioned in the book. And it's a beautiful one because, as you know, it gives comfort to those who have died in the Lord. And uh, that's uh, what 14, verse 13 is about. Then we have at the end of 14 a kind of a harvest scene. Actually, there are two scenes. The first scene, usually referred to as bringing in the sheaves. <laughs> the question is, is this uh, the universal judgment or is it simply um, the reward of the faithful here? And commentators debate on that question. But it, it truly is a harvest scene. Um, my own view is that it's a general scene, and then the second scene is the judgment of the wicked. And I say that because I see kind of a symmetry here with chapter 20, where you have a general scene and then a scene for only the redeemed, you see. So here it's, I think, a general scene and a scene on those upon whom wrath comes later, at the time of the judgment, we see you know, the faithful people especially singled out because their names are written in the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb, whereas the general judgment includes all people, but the faithful have a special place in that. But that's a matter of opinion. But I want you to look at the last verses of chapter um, 14 where you have the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God. That's based on several Old Testament pictures. One is found in Isaiah 63, and the other one is found in Joel 3, where um, the conquering figure is seen as coming from the south, the land of Edom, and treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. And you, you don't necessarily, from the Old Testament alone, see that it's messianic, but it, it is in rescue of God's people. But here you see the rescue of God's people in a very obvious way, namely that Jesus treads out the winepress of God's wrath against the evil ones. And the blood of the grape that's pressed out is so high in this 
wine press, then it comes up to a horse's bridle. Can you imagine? I mean, what would a horse be doing in a wine press anyway? Usually it'd be human beings stomping out the wine press. But um, you get your answer when we flip fast forward to chapter 19, which we're going to do right now. And we're going to skip past the harlot Babylon, who is revealed in chapter 17. We might pick her up later if we have time, but you know who she is. She is Rome, and uh, Rome is destroyed in chapter 17, 18. There's her lament there. Chapter 19, um, after the destruction of the harlot Babylon, who is uh, properly um, lamented by all of those who had dealings with her, the kings and the merchants and the sailors, they all lament her because they did their business with her. We have a contrasting figure in chapter 19 of great rejoicing, the rejoicing of the redeemed. And you have here the inspiration for Handel's Hallelujah Chorus because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And um, the judgment of the harlot is described as just and true by all the faithful. The 24 elders, certainly, and the four living beasts, they all you know, echo the same, that God is just and true. And you have four hallelujahs here. The only place, I think, in the New Testament where you have any hallelujahs at all, right here in this brief sequence between verses 1 through 6 in Revelation 19. And then you have the reference to the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course, that's Jesus, and the church is the bride that he is espoused to. And blessed are you if you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, another beatitude. And by the way, you are all invited. Um, <laughs> you know that. Okay. God bless you. Take the invitation. The best one you ever get. Um, verse 11. Verse 11. Here we have the rider on the white horse. And we, we kind of pulled out of chapter 14 rather abruptly and said, what's a horse doing in a wine press? You know, the blood of the grapes came as high as the bridle of the horse. Well, here you have the answer. Because the rider on the white horse, who is called faithful and true, who is also called the word of God, and he's called king of kings and lord of lords, you know that's Jesus, has, as verse 13 says, a robe that is dipped in blood. Well, how did he get his robe dipped in blood? Well, he's the guy on the horse in the wine press. Jesus trod the wine press all alone. There was no one to help him. He incurred the wrath of God for the sake of all of humanity. And here he rides forth triumphantly with the badge of his virtue on his robe. He's got, you know, the blood stain right there to prove that he is the one who, who did it. Actually, it even talks about uh, that in verse 15, about this writer, that he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God the Almighty. And when is that to come? That comes on Judgment Day ultimately, right? So that's still described in chapter 20, which is soon to follow. At the end of 19, of course, you have the great victory of this writer with the company of heaven that rides in his, in his wake, and they overcome the beast and the false prophet and the evil armies without a single casualty, okay? Uh, it is a clear victory without any bloodshed of the good guys. It's the bad guys uh, who, who are delivered then to the um, lake of fire and brimstone, which is described here as um, burning 
and uh, burning forever. <coughs> Chapter 20. Yesterday, I think we touched a little bit on the thousand years. So I don't know if we need to touch on it today. And we have already said that, well, if you want amplification of what I'm talking about, uh, uh, Lou Brighton has, I think, the best commentary out there. There's a number of really good ones out beside his. If you want other bibliography, I can give that to you privately. But um, he, he, I think, nails it when he says that the thousand years begins with Satan being overcome by Jesus as he did in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And it ends when Jesus returns at the end of the age. That's the period of the thousand years. Um, ten times ten times ten, that whole long period of time. Uh, there is um, <clears throat> um, the judgment scene at the end of chapter 20. And we see in verse 10, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. And together the unholy... Um, three um, are roasted and um, tormented forever and ever, it says. And then, the, before the great white throne, verse 11 of chapter 20, we find um, the judgment scene there that everybody, all the dead, appear, all those from land and sea and wherever they were, the sea even gave up its dead. Hades and death gave up its dead. And... Uh, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone too, which is the second death, the lake of fire, hell. Um, and uh, yet we, we need to look at one more thing. In verse 12, in the middle of it, another book was opened, which is the book of life, the book of life. Um, you know, that's where the names of the faithful are inscribed in the book of life. They do not come under judgment um, because their names are written in the book of life. So you have there that scene that indicates uh, their favored position because they have been faithful unto death and thus they have received the crown of life. They're written in the book of life. Chapter 21, 22 is a portraiture of heaven and uh, it talks about the new Jerusalem coming forth from heaven and um, the glories of heaven. And as we look toward the end of um, this wonderful depiction, which kind of is more than the mind can absorb because there's really no earthly parallel to that. Uh, we see in chapter 21, verse 22, that heaven has no temple because it doesn't need a temple because it already has one. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. That's in keeping with the teaching we had in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, Jesus referring to his body, and on the third day I will raise it up again. Uh, so um, there is no temple made of big stone blocks uh, as it might be envisioned from former times. And the city has no need of sun or moon. Why not? Because its lamp is the lamb, L-A-M-B. The lamb is the lamp, P at the end. He gives enlightenment. He is, after all, the light of the world. And nothing unclean will enter it. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. And in chapter 22, you have the scene of the, the garden, the uh, paradise restored, if you will, the garden that has fruit every month of the year, new uh, crop of fruit uh, from the tree of life, and different from the book of Genesis where the fruit could not be eaten. Here it is accessible, and its leaves give healing. Um, so um, in Genesis, man was 
forbidden to eat from the book of life because if he were to be eternal in his sinful condition, this would be a terrible, terrible future. But now that he's in heaven to live forever in the presence of the glorious uh, God and the Lamb uh, is indeed uh, the highest kind of reward one could envision. And it says here that um, they will reign forever and ever uh, with the Lord. And the book concludes with a threefold, no, sevenfold prayer, come Lord Jesus. You know, seven times the word come is mentioned here indicating how uh, the yearning of um, the saints is for the return of the Lord when all of this will come to pass. Interestingly, the book closes in verse 18 of chapter 22 with a warning. And I add this here as a kind of a humorous note, um, if it is humorous. <laughs> uh, it says here, I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecies of the book if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which is described in this book. Well, what makes it humorous is that some years ago, when Reader's Digest decided to publish a kind of a scaled-down version of the Bible, uh, guess what? These verses were omitted. So... <laughs> Sorry, Reader's Digest, but you're under the curse. <laughs> Maybe that's not what's meant here, but the idea that is meant is that if uh, you uh, try to minimize the, uh, the word of, of God's promise and um, his encouragement for the faithful and as well as the need to abide by his law, uh, then you're in big trouble. I don't think Reader's Digest intended that. But <laughs> some people have pointed out that that's kind of interesting that, that they should omit this verse. But they had a cut somewhere, I guess they thought. So they did.